welcome to an episode of Stories from Objects. ideology, social history, the more and more I realise that it's about the intermarriage of evidence uh, and what different perspectives from different types of evidence can tell us about the Roman world. Oh, fascinating. And what um, made you decide to focus on the Roman world as opposed to the Greek world? Because I'm a Greek archaeologist, I think everything <laughs> Greek is the best. I know, I often feel when I talk to people who specialise in the Greek world that I'm like sort of the dark side of the force, the Roman Empire. Um, it's a hard question. I've often found that students and researchers just seem to have a sort of natural predisposition uh, towards one or the other. Um, I'm not sure whether it's the, the organisation of the Roman world or, or Roman politics. For me, I definitely, in my undergraduate, was leaning towards the Roman world. Oh, I see. But then um, I discovered uh, Athens <laughs> and Sparta, and then that was it. Actually, that was your moment. Yeah, exactly. I actually had almost the same, but in reverse. One of the last <laughs> things I did as an undergraduate was early Greek hexameter poetry. So Homer, Hesiod, the epic um, poetry of the Odyssey and the Iliad, and I absolutely loved it. But by that point, I'd kind of become a Roman historian, and that was in large part due to a couple of fantastic tutors, and one tutor in particular, Lee Yarrow, um, who's now a professor um, in um, New York. Uh, but she worked in the coin room in the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, and not only did she introduce coins to us as a historical tool for understanding sort of political and economic issues in the Roman world, but she also obviously took us to the museum and then you got, got our hands on the coins and that was particularly exciting and then you kind of understood the value of these objects in telling us about history. And one of the core reasons why I wanted to do this podcast was this idea of having teaching collections mm. and allowing students 
to handle and hold and touch and look at these objects. Um, and as an ancient historian, um, primarily, I know you've worked somewhat in archaeology before. Mm -hmm. How important or significant is material culture to you uh, and your research? From both a research point of view and a teaching point of view, it's absolutely vital. I don't think I could do the research or even teach what I do without using material culture. Uh, not just coins, but also monumental um, uh, evidence, um, epigraphic, which obviously really involves inscription. So on one level it's just text, but of course it's not. It's text mm. with a sort of physicality about it. Um, this is really about sort of trying to understand a complete world, or as much as we can from the scant evidence we have. And of course you can trace um, ideas or ideologies that you might see in the literature in the coins or in the inscriptions or in the sculpture. This is sort of, they all relate and interrelate whilst also offering different perspectives at the same time. Yeah, because I'd definitely say that material culture definitely fills in some of the gaps that, mm. you know, you sometimes see like literary evidence like, say, Suetonius or mm -hmm. other writers like that who just, because of their own biases, they just leave out and they don't even consider writing. Exactly, out. yeah. Um, I mean, Suetonius is a great example of someone who does obviously have uh, viewpoints, but for example, he gives us a description of the Emperor Augustus, and it seems that you know he he had like straw coloured hair, he was a bit scrawny, he even wore like lifts on his shoes, you know, mm -hmm. wasn't quite tall enough. But of course, when you look at the, the sculptural depictions of Augustus or the portraiture, you don't get that impression. So, of course, you're getting two different presentations, you're getting the sort of um, the propaganda for want of a, a better mm -hmm. word, and obviously that can be a problematic term to use sometimes, but you know, the, the self-promoted advertisement, mm -hmm. the photoshopped version of Augustus that we see on coins and, and, and statues, and then the sort of the, uh, the gossip rumour, um, you know, rumours about what he looked like and what he did in his private life. So yeah, different perspectives and, mm -hmm. you know. That's something, speaking at it from the other perspective, as an archaeologist who uses text to mm. supplement their research, um, it allows us to place things within a context yes. and I don't think you can get away from that particularly in our field of research mm -hmm. because we have a literate society um, and that just has so much to say about itself there's no way that we can take those objects out of that context yeah and that exact question about sort of you know literacy or illiteracy or the sort of spectrum that is people's engagement with written text I mean just this afternoon I was in the library doing some research um, for a paper looking at the Civil War period of the late Republic and trying to sort of understand the various negotiations between the different political groups and getting interested in how um, language of, of concord and agreement was being sort of used, um, particularly how marriage as concord was being sort of used between the different players and looking at the coins, and um, you have these two joined hands, a shaking hands agreement. But then that got me thinking about how actually this is a symbol that also you find in Roman art in different contexts, not just purely political. So for marriage, the joining of hands is a sort of the ultimate symbol of marriage in the Roman world. So there are these sort of linking connotations, both social and political, that you can trace iconographically and visually, um, which clearly would have a resonance for a contemporary Roman audience, you know, it's not just about the buzzword of the day, but symbols are being used by politicians that are sort of commonplace in everyday life, and that has obviously implications for its use mm -hmm. in politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really important point as well. I'm very biased, I think everything in the ancient world is relevant today, 
but symbols of power or oh, yes. symbols of mm. communication, those shorthand messages are still so prevalent in today's political environment. Um, I always tell my students that you know we might be studying something that's 2,500 mm. years old, um, but we can learn from this and then use it later on and, and become more savvy in recognizing these symbols and understanding the pretext and the context behind it. Do you find that? Well, in a way, yes, especially, well, like you said, in the modern political climate, how symbols of power can be used to convey a very specific message, mm. but it's also just how those audiences then receive those messages mm. and how they interpret those symbols on their own, mm -hmm. which I think is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think, especially in the ancient world, is sort of kind of a mystery to unravel, which I guess is kind of fun to do sometimes, I guess. Yeah, definitely, and also being aware that it's not just one audience, but a multitude of audiences, different social groups, different ethnicities, different levels of literacy, different genders. Mm -hmm. People are going to be approaching these things with a, a, a commonality of understanding, but also with different levels of engagement and different interests, just as nowadays. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, you have some coins I to show I do have some coins to show you, yes. Tell us all about it. We're looking forward to it. So please, what's your first pick? Well, I'd like to start actually with the three coins from all from the imperial period. I hasten to add, we um, the university has a great collection of Roman Republican coins as well in the Barber Institute, which I also use for teaching. And I take my third years there when we're studying Roman social war um, and civil war because um, it's really interesting to see the political messages that competing um, politicians are putting in their coins during periods of conflict. But these are all from the empire. Uh, and so for the most part, it's really messages of stability, a strong and stable Roman Empire. Um, so I'd like to start actually chronologically in the middle, um, partly because this is a, a really nice example of a coin that has survived really well and actually still looks really crisp and sort of legible today. And it's a coin of the Emperor Trajan. Um, and he was emperor um, in the... Um, first part of the second century AD, when the Roman Empire was at its biggest uh, territorially. Um, and this is just a really nice example of um, how easy it can be to read a Roman coin, even if you have never looked at one before, if you don't have any Latin, um, there are ways of decoding it and sort of getting your eye into that visual language, but also sort of the writing and sort of what can be conveyed through language on coins as well. So, um, in, in numismatics, and I should point out that I am a historian, not a numismatist, and numismatists are people who uh, are trained very, very seriously in the study of coins. Um, I'm a historian who f um, uses uh, coins as a historical tool, but some technical language just to sort of um, get us into the numismatic frame of mind. Now, um, we tend to talk about nowadays the head side of the coin, and the tail side of the coin, you know, when you flip a coin, heads, tails. Uh, so in numismatics, we refer to the obverse, which is the head side, and the reverse, which is the tail side. Mm -hmm. So on the obverse side of the coin, um, in the um, empire, it's always, the, you know, the head is always on the obverse, and it's always the Roman emperor. And so we have a very nice portrait of the emperor Trajan here, and even though it's a little bit worn, you might be able to make out that he's wearing a laurel wreath. Mm -hmm. Any guesses to what that indicates in the Roman world? Or even the Greek world? A laurel crown. A victor? A victor, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Obviously it comes from the Panhellenic Games. It's one of the, um, 
the uh, laurels um, at um, Olympia. Um, but it's used by the Romans in the triumph, the military ceremony in Rome, and in the empire, it's something that the emperor always wore to signify uh, military success. There are other types of crowns you can wear, uh, but the laurel is perhaps one of the most common. And round the outside of the coin, we have what's called, what's round the outside of the image is what's called the legend, the writing of the coin. And this tells us who it is, if we didn't know already from the portrait. The legend on this side of the coin reads, Imperator Caesar Nerva Trajanus Augustus Germanicus. Um, and this comes from right at the very beginning of Trajan's reign, actually in 98, 99 BC. Um, the last part of his name, Germanicus, is because he's just been victorious in Germany. Um, so we get an indication of why he's allowed to wear the laurel wreath. Uh, it also gives us an indication of imperial titles. So Imperator, Caesar, these are titles inherited from the first emperors, likewise Augustus, but he's got his own names as well. Um, but his title doesn't end on that side of the coin. To read the full title, you've got to flip the coin over and read the obverse. So the title continues... And on this side of the coin, the writing is all very, very abbreviated. We're kind of down to single letters. Um, P, M, T, R, P, Cos, Roman numeral three, P, P. Oh, that makes perfect sense. It makes quite, exactly. <laughs> uh, what's quite useful about sort of Latin loves to abbreviate, uh, particularly on coins when there's very little space, but also on inscriptions, but also on um, phrasing, which is very, very common, very well known. Um, and so these jumbled letters actually stand for Pontifex Maximus, so chief priest, uh, tribunica potestas, with tribunician power, a power that the emperor held. Cos actually means consul, so consul for the third time, and PP, pater patriae, father of the country. So that's the full sweep of Trajan's title running around both sides of the coin. And the image uh, on the reverse of the coin is a seated female figure with a very large pair of wings, uh, a palm branch and, and a dish. Um, and any guesses as to who female winged figure in the ancient world would be? It's probably victory. It's very good, exactly. It's victory. Or in Greek? Nike. Exactly, yeah, where we get Nike from nowadays. <laughs> so, I mean, this is just further reaffirming that Trajan is awesome, uh, that he's had military victories, and this is why he deserves to be emperor, that the empire is in a safe pair of hands with him on the throne. Um, but this is just a really nice example of how coins can be really legible. Um, unfortunately, our second coin is, is less so. <laughs> um, so... Reading from that, you get an idea that that coin is loaded, loaded, loaded with, with message. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just so fascinating that, you know, these kind of objects that are we pass through our hands so mm. quickly, would it be the case that, you know, someone would sit and study the coin? Or is it just that Trajan wants to get across a very quick, powerful message to whoever's handling that coin? I'm the boss. Here's why. Question. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great question, and it's something that students often ask. Actually, is like, who actually looks at coins? Would people have bothered to look at them? You spend all your time decoding them, and are people actually paying any attention? And that's quite a difficult one to answer from an audience point of view. It's a bit like, I mean, the modern analogy is not perfect because our relationship with money is becoming more and more. Yeah. 
uh, binary uh, nowadays. Um, but I mean, I personally, this is probably only because I'm interested in coins, like when, I'm actually, when I actually have money in my wallet uh, and I'm at this self-service, you know, checkout in the supermarket, I do get excited when I spot like a two pound coin or a 50p piece, which has a different tail side than usual. Um, and that may be only because I, I like coins, but it does sort of tell me that on some subconscious level, I, I know what I expect to see on a coin, and when it's something different, something novel, it catches my attention. Um, now, in the Roman world, obviously, I mean, people are being bombarded with images in all different forms of media. Coins are such a great way of communicating information because they're small, they're transportable, they pass through many hands, and they have a, you know, a function, they're sort of you know, financial transactions, but with that you can get a message out to people all around the empire, not just you know, in the Roman Forum. Um, now, clearly, we spoke earlier about there being different, different audiences, so some people might spend more time or read more into the symbols on coins than uh, another person, but clearly for Trajan, and those working for him and producing these designs, you know, these mattered. It was a way of conveying, as you say, perhaps just in a single snapshot moment, you see the emperor with the laurel wreath and the victory, and you know straight away what he's talking about, whether or not you've really bothered to read the entirety of his titulature. And even just visually, um, on the reverse side with the victory, um, we might assume that lots of people in the Roman world reading the P-M-T-R-P cost three PP, it just, you just know, you get so used to seeing that and understanding what that means that you don't have to spend a long time trying to translate it, as it were. That's yes. actually a good point, isn't it? I was going to say, because yeah. you know, at the end of the day, it's, um, you really just, the, the overwhelming message that you get is that this man is in power, this is the man who is in control right now. Yeah. And that's all you really need to know, I think, as an average Roman peasant. That's a great way of summarising it, exactly, yeah. This is all you need to know and care about. <laughs> Go forth and enjoy the peace that Trajan has brought. Yeah. And so what's your next coin uh, Yeah, the next coin, as I said, it's not quite so pretty or is in such a good condition as the coin of Trajan, but it's quite an interesting one uh, for a number of reasons. So this is a, uh, a bronze coin from possibly Antioch, certainly uh, Syria, so um, uh, the very eastern part of the Mediterranean in the Roman world. And it's a coin that depicts Augustus, the first Roman emperor, or princeps, as, as he's normally referred to. Um, and this is quite interesting because, um, well, from my point of view, one of my first year modules is on Augustus. Uh, and um, the sort of the man, the myth, and the making of history. Can we sort of you know get at the real Augustus versus the as we spoke earlier, Suetonius versus the visual imagery of him? Um, and what's interesting about this coin is that we have obviously Augustus's portrait, we have um, his title on there, we know who it is. Uh, but this is not a coin like the coin of Trajan that was minted by a centralized Roman government. It's not minted by um, the mint at Rome on behalf of the emperor. This is a, um, a provincial coin, shall we say, or, or possibly. It's coming from Antioch. It's not a standardised Roman denomination. But what's interesting, so on the other verse we've got, hopefully you can make out Augustus's head. It is quite warm, but you can see there's a head there. Um, and if you know Augustus's head, it, it looks like him. You might just be able to make out some letters you might be able to make out Augustus on there, but it really is quite worn. But there are obviously other examples of this coin that we can compare it to. But the reverse side is quite interesting because uh, we've got round the outside, uh, once again, a laurel wreath, so again, victory, all things great. But in the centre, we've got two letters, 
really, really big and very, very clear. I'm not going to miss these, even though this example is really badly worn. And that, uh, those are SC. And this is a very common shorthand, again, on coins. But, o well, I say only, there are some examples on non-bronze coinage, but this is a particular shorthand that you see on bronze coins um, in the imperial period. This stands for Senatus Consulto, by decree of the Senate. And the Senate in the imperial period were in charge of bronze coinage. Um, so although this is not minted in Rome, it's minted in the East, it it's, has a stamp or senator, senatorial authority, excuse me, um, so this is kind of interesting because we're getting messages from the eastern part of the empire, but it's engaging with the idea of senatorial authority. Augustus, just like Trajan, is you know quite clearly the man in power. Sorry, go on. yeah, that was quite interesting. So you know, you see that coin was minted in the east. Would mm -hmm. you see any differentiation between coins that you would find at Rome during that same time? Well. Equally at this time, we do get coins with SC very, very boldly on the reverse, you know, almost nothing else apart from perhaps a border. Um, we don't get this specific coin or this coin type minted at Rome. This one seems, you know, unique or specific uh, to Syria, um, although obviously it's got quite generic iconography, you know, mm -hmm. the emperor's head and the laurel wreath. Um, what's interesting, obviously, it's, it's minted in the east, but it, the legend... Trust me on this one, I know it's really hard to see in this coin of Augustus Caesar is in Latin. It's not in Greek. And we have to remember, though, that sort of the Eastern Mediterranean, you know, sort of Turkey, Asia Minor, and obviously the Greek mainland and Macedonia were predominantly Greek-speaking. Yeah, yeah. The provincial coinage coming out of these areas were, were all in Greek. Um, but the Romans of issued coins often were, or all were, in Latin. So again, there's an interesting sort of tension... Of, of culture, of language, of identity, um, so perhaps a further emphasis on who's in charge, huh. the Romans. <laughs> it's almost like um, it, it emphasises the idea that it wasn't really meant to be read necessarily, mm. but the image itself was the important thing. Yeah, I think so. That's a really nice point. Um, and certainly there are, we have evidence of um, coins from the, the end of the Republican period, so when um, Augustus, or Octavian as he was sort of known, before becoming the emperor, uh, was fighting against Mark Antony and Cleopatra. And we have coins from Antony in the East, which are Greek coins. They're a specific type of coin minted in Ephesus in Turkey called uh, Sistophory. Um, but he is very sort of, it's a mixture of Greek iconography, allusions to Bacchus, um, but the, the writing is all in Latin. And it's all sort of saying that Antony is consul and he's triumvir and he's imperator and all these things. Antony also mints coins with Cleopatra, um, and these, again, these are minted in Syria, um, uh, and those are in Greek. And that's interesting because on one side you've got Antony, who's, even though it's in Greek, is still very much the language of Roman constitutional power, and Cleopatra is named um, Thea Neotra. Oh, it's Basilisa Cleopatra Thea Neotra, so mm -hmm. Queen Cleopatra you know, newer goddess, so divine and monarchical power. But that is very much clearly directed towards a Greek-speaking audience, as opposed to an audience who is using Greek coinage but might also engage in Latin, such as Antony's troops. It's quite fascinating, as you rightly say, Kate, this idea that we think of Rome, and Rome, you know, geographically is one city, mm. but it's in control of this vast yeah. territory 
Um, and so how do you express that power quite quickly? And then you see with the example of Markelsky, how it can be used differently depending on where you are in the, in exactly, the Roman yes. landscape. Yeah. Um, so it's absolutely fascinating to see a coin and a little bit of a snapshot mm. of it within the Roman world, but not within Rome, I guess yeah. you can say. Yeah, very sort of yeah. simple and sort of almost universal yes. imagery. But as, as you said, it's sort of it's... it's a real snapshot. It's yeah. it's not a difficult coin to read. You've yeah. got a head and a laurel wreath and a big SC stamp on it. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. What else have you got? For okay, us? so <laughs> the last coin I have, and actually it's a, almost a nice transition thinking about sort of the different the diversity of the Roman world, not just in language, but in terms of um, other types of identity, uh, be it gender or religion. Um, so this final coin. Um, I don't think I would have actually really sort of thought much about had had made had you not been reorganising the collection and designing this fabulous new display for us um, and asking me to have a look at the coins because um, often obviously when you're teaching or researching specific topics you tend to gravitate towards sort of you know obviously material that um, is in particular to what you're you know researching or teaching obviously I teach uh, on the late Republic and Augustus so these are the coins that I often use in teaching. Um, but obviously you kind of forced me to have a look at more coins, um, which is great. No, so this, this final coin um, I kind of was levitated towards because it's the one coin in our collection which does not depict a man. Yay! Hooray! Um, exactly. So this is, it's really nice to see a historical female figure on a coin. Uh, now, so this coin on the obverse side, we have the bust of Julia Domna, um, who was the empress um, of Rome, married to Septimius Severus. Um, and so it's, you know, it's obviously she's you know, perhaps the most powerful or most elite woman in the Roman world at this point. But still, it's, it's interesting to see that women were allowed on coins. Mm. Obviously, connection with the emperor is important. But what's quite fun about this coin is we've got her on the obverse and we've got um, her title. It's actually Julia um, um, Augusta on this coin. Again, referencing back to sort of imperial titles, Trajan was Augustus, um, he, she is also Augusta. Um, but on the, um, the reverse side, the tail side, it's quite fun. We've got this image, which actually is quite contemporary and, and relevant to modern discussions about, um, it's going to sound weird, but about breastfeeding. <laughs> Can we breastfeed in public? Strong reactions about people who think it's, you know, not sanitary or not pleasant and other people who have the other reaction that it's natural and it's beautiful and it should be allowed to happen when you've got a hungry baby what we have depicted here is a woman suckling or a suckling child and mother um so she's got her breast out it might be quite hard to see in this coin but it's a scene of a mother and child but it's not just any mother and child it's in fact the goddess isis and her son horus so we've got egyptian iconography at play here of course, by this point, the Roman Empire, they, were, they, they liked their Egyptian iconography. It was, you know, it was partly perhaps initially introduced as being something exotic, but also an example of the inclusivity of the Roman Empire, what the Roman Empire allowed you have considered within its, sort of, um, within its boundaries. Um, but also has, you know, this is a, um, a divine family, as it were. Um, um, so there's this idea of, um, and, and the, the image of a mother and child, obviously, particularly a mother feeding her child, is automatically ideas of nurture, 
of um, fecundity, prosperity, or even abundance. Um, and, and this is re-emphasized, or further emphasized, I should say, on the, ob- the reverse sorry, of this coin with, with the legend, with the writing, which is cycli um, felicitas, so the, the, the felicity, the fortune, the good luck of the age. So this is an image which is sort of linking Julia Domna as the female head of the imperial household, as the mother of two imperial sons, with this divine mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and also at the same time, on coins depicting Julia Domna, we have other female deities who are associated with motherhood. So the great mother goddess, uh, Sibylle, from, again from the East. Um, so those, these coins are kind of interesting because we, we have a range of issues. We've got religious inclusivity, we've got sort of female identities, we've got ideas of prosperity which are inherently linked to, to motherhood and women in the Roman world. Uh, and these are being promoted, albeit as part of a big imperial plan. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just interesting because, you know, I guess the, whole, the entire role of Roman women for most of the time was being a mother and mm. being like that family figure, that domestic authority yeah. almost. So it's just interesting how that's emphasised just on the public domain as well. Yeah, here finally, well, not finally, but here it is being celebrated mm. on a coin. Um, and it, it sort of ties back to earlier images that we start, we see at the, the beginning of, of the Roman Empire, so under Augustus, again, who really is kind of the, the progenitor for all things, what Roman imperialism should look like. Um, so you um, might have heard of the Augustan Altar of Peace, which is a monumental marble altar at Rome, with a very rich sculptural relief program. And one of the figures uh, on there, um, she's identified under various titles, either Venus Genetrix or Telos or mm-hmm. Pax, um, uh, Mother Earth, but it is a female um, with, with two young children in her lap, and she's mm-hmm. also got sort of poppies and apples and a scene of, again, of abundance. But this is clearly a key part of Roman ideology, a way of expressing, again, very sort of, in a sense, sim- simply, you know, mother and child, it automatically sort of tells you something about the nature of the world you're in, um, about, but this is what the Roman Empire brings, you know, um, and with it, this coin of Julia Domna is, is, is sort of celebrating um, not just divine motherhood or imperial motherhood, but the idea of this, this, um, this imperial age, the cyclus, is is characterized by the sort of felicity of of abundance of reproduction. Um, so, yeah. No, it's, it's fascinating. I get very excited every time I see a woman featured. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's great. To yes. do with the world. Yeah, and it, of course it does. You know, in our collection, this is or the Kaha Museum. This is the only. There are obviously we have. Plenty of examples on the coins in the collections of female personifications, mm. so female embodiments mm. of, of, um, of qualities, uh, or for example with the Trajan's coin, Victory, it's always a female, but these are sort of divine elements. Mm. And obviously with this Julia Domna coin, of course, it is, again, a divine depiction of motherhood, but linked, obviously, to a female figure. And it's really exciting, but of course, you know, the, the sad thing is that obviously it's a sort of, um, in the minority of images on these coins, which again gives us an indication though, again, as you were saying about the role of women in Roman society being about sort of motherhood, but also that they are not as visual, at least on yeah. cert- in certain sort of mm. evidence, and particularly coins, they're not as prominent as, as their male counterparts. Mm. It's 
maybe an odd question, but um, what do you think was the reason? Because you know, women are very rarely appeared on mm. coinage, especially on the obverse, actually. So, what do you makes you? What do you think? Well, why, why, why? Do you, why do you think she appears? Well, I, it's interesting. In the second century um, AD, well, actually, even in the first century, you do get images of women on coins of historical women. So um, Augustus's daughter Julia appears um, on the reverse. So, um, it, so it's interesting here that we have a female figure on the obverse. Um, obviously, coins have two sides, and they sort of you know they're red in tandem. But the the head side, in a sense, is not necessarily more important, but it's telling you really who the authority is, particularly in the empire. You know, you're in the empire once you get one man's head on a coin. <laughs> it's actually, no, I, I'm being completely serious here when I'm teaching sort of Augustus. In the late Republic, from Julius Caesar onwards, you start to see living Romans putting their heads on coins, um, and you get this sort of competitive element. Caesar does it, then Brutus does it, then Mark Antony does it, then Octavian does it, Lepidus does it. Um, but if people were to ask me, when does the Republic end and the Empire begin? One viewpoint is, if you look at the coins... It comes to the point when it's just one man mm. and it's Augustus. And that's quite a clear visual. Again, this yeah. quick snapshot, yeah. you know. So with, the, with imperial women appearing on the obverse side of the coin, it's something you sort of see particularly in, um, in the high empire. Um, so from the sort of the mid-second century onwards. Um, and this is often a time that is characterised by, by modern scholars, but also by the sources being sort of, you know, the the golden age, um, the empire at its greatest extent, it's um, the Pax Roman, the Roman peace, the sort of prosperity of the Roman Empire is really in full force. Um, and of course, it's also a period of, um, of imperial dynasty, of part, you know, it's just the period when we start to see sort of imperial sons born to an emperor, sort of um, Commodus is the first um, emperor born in the purple, so he was born when his father was emperor. Mm-hmm. And that's actually... Commodus is the first one to that, for that to happen to. Um, so we're in a period, actually, when actually the... I guess the bloodline of the emperors is, is becoming important and emphasised. Um, previously, before Julia Domna, uh, Faust uh, um, the Younger was also had a coin which used the same terminology, the Saikuli uh, Bilikitas, uh, in 161 AD, when she'd given birth to Commodus and his twin brother. So again, twins, doubly, doubly fecund. So, but, so there is this emphasis on, on dynastic issues yeah. that clearly it seems to be sort of becoming more prevalent in, in this period. Wow. Yeah. I think that's just genuinely fascinating. We, so much information. Just from three little coins. coins. And we should emphasise that you know, these coins aren't particularly big either. They are small things. They're not the fanciest of coins, or that significant historically, but... They're kind of awesome, though. They are. (laughs) Exactly. Thank you. It's my pleasure. (laughs) Thank you for letting me talk about them. Um, Well, that's all.